The views expressed on this program are not necessarily the views of this station. Content is for educational purposes only. Consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence of investing. Calls are pre-screened and the show was pre-recorded earlier this week. Rick is with Edelman Financial Engines, a part of Financial Engines Advisors, LLC, and the investment advisor that furnishes this program. The ranking issued by Barron's is based on assets under management, revenue, and quality of the advisor's practice, including the advisor's regulatory record. Investment returns are not considered because they're dictated by each client's risk tolerance. Like all applicants, principles of Edelman Financial Services submitted qualitative and quantitative information to Barron's, which Barron's reviewed to produce the rankings for 2009, 2010, and 2012. Firm self-nominate. Investment returns and experience are not considered. Advisors in the Hall of Fame have been in the top 100 for 10-plus years. Future performance is not guaranteed. This is The Rick Edelman Show. Barron's ranks Edelman Financial Engines the number one independent investment advisor in the country. And Rick is in the Barron's Financial Advisor Hall of Fame. Now, here's Rick Edelman. Welcome to the program. Thanks for being here this weekend. It's a very special broadcast today. Ordinarily, we look at what's happening now and what's going to be happening in the future, which we'll be doing next week with a special show answering your questions on Bitcoin and digital assets. But today, we're going to take a look back because today is the 29th anniversary of The Rick Edelman Show. Thank you so much for welcoming me into your car and your home for all of these years. This radio show is the longest-running national program on personal finance, and here we are today, 29 years later, more than 1,500 broadcasts that I've done for you over the years. And today, we're now airing on 90 radio stations across the country with, I don't know, half a million listeners, a million listeners every week tuning in to The Rick Edelman Show. And on today's broadcast, we're going to look back on the last 29 years and show you the advice I've given and compare that to the advice that I give you today. We're going to do a recap of some of the antics at home with my wife, Jean, and all our dogs over the decades, and you'll hear some controversial segments as well, along with some of the unique moments that we've shared together, some of them pretty funny, some of them quite somber. Plus, I'll give you the top 29 pieces of advice that I've offered you over the last 29 years. So thank you for joining me for this very special 29th anniversary broadcast. We've been through a lot together over the past 29 years. The early 90s recession, the Fed crushing the bond market in 1994 with six interest rate increases in a single year, the tech bubble bursting in 2000, 9-11, the credit crisis of 2008, the fiscal cliff of 2013, the extraordinary market volatility of 2015, the scary start to 2016 when the stock market had the worst first week of the year in its history, and of course, the COVID-19 pandemic that isn't over yet. Helping you through all this, figuring out what to make of it, what you should do with your investments as a result of it, that's the purpose of this program. And providing financial information and advice, well, that's why Gene and I started our financial planning firm back in the 1980s. It was just the two of us back in 1986, but today Edelman Financial Engines is one of the largest financial planning and investment management firms in the country. We're managing $260 billion for 1.3 million individuals and families coast to coast. And along the way, I've been named the nation's number one independent financial advisor three times by Barron's. 
in addition to receiving dozens of awards for my radio and television shows, my 10 books, monthly newsletter, thousands of seminars and webinars, and audios and videos. And I've been named many times by several publications as one of the industry's most prominent thought leaders. I received a Lifetime Achievement Award, too. And most important to me and this show, I've been repeatedly listed on the Heavy 100 by Talkers Magazine, named one of the nation's 100 most important radio talk show hosts. We now have more than 340 financial planners across the country, 1,500 employees in total, and all of us are dedicated to serving you. The topics I talk about on the show here each week and that I've been talking about for the last 29 years, they're the topics that are important to you and to the financial future of your family. How to make sure you're saving enough for retirement, the importance of diversification and how to do it, why you must remain invested all the time, especially during periods of crisis and panic, why listening to the media is so dangerous to your wallet, why you should be working with a fee-based fiduciary financial advisor and not some commission product-based salesperson, and how to tell the difference whether you are or not, the crisis you might be facing if you're promised a pension, the risks to Social Security, why you need to protect yourself in the face of bad boy behavior in the financial industry, why carrying a big, long mortgage is the right financial strategy, how to get the most in benefits from Social Security, the importance of financial literacy, how to protect yourself against elder financial abuse and identity theft, and how to protect yourself, your family, against scams. And of course, the impact of exponential technologies on college planning, long-term care, estate planning, and most importantly, your investment strategy. Not only do I cover all these topics on this show week to week, we do it in our webinars and seminars as well, our PBS television specials, and in my 10 books, on personal finance. My path to providing financial advice and financial planning, investment management, wasn't a typical path. I didn't go to business school. My degree is in communications. I was a writer, a journalist. And soon I found myself writing in the financial trade press. That is what led Gene and me to seek out a financial planner. We wanted to buy a house, you know, like every young couple. And so we went to a financial advisor for help. He gave us horrible advice, fraudulent advice, actually. He told us to lie on our mortgage application. Made us really mad. So we decided to learn how to do this ourselves and then teach other people what we'd learned and to help them do it, too. That was the basis of our little enterprise. It was simple. We wanted to educate people about money, to create a work environment where people could feel safe and respected. We wanted to help people like us people who didn't necessarily have a lot of money but who needed help, couldn't get that help because they weren't rich enough for all those Wall Street firms. So Gene and I started out by doing seminars on college planning, and we did them for elementary school PTA groups, parents of young children. They usually don't have a lot of money, but they sure need the help because of the incredible cost of college. Now, planning for college while the kids are young, that's routine today. But back in the 1980s, that was unheard of. Financial planning was new to most people back then. Mutual funds were still a new idea to most Americans. Back then, you probably don't remember, but back in the 80s, employers handled your retirement account. You didn't choose the investments for your 401k plan. Your boss did for you. Sounds crazy now, but that's how it used to work. And so in that environment, 
Gene and I went to PTA groups and we said, hey, let us teach your parents how to save for college for the kids. And the PTA presidents always said the same thing. Why are you talking to us? Our kids are eight and 10 years old. Go to the high school PTAs. They're the parents who care about college. And so our education began right there in those very first phone calls. We had to explain to those PTA presidents why they needed to let us talk to their members at their next meeting. you got to reach the parents while the kids are still very little. Well, over the next few years, we ended up doing seminars for pretty much every elementary school PTA in the area. And word spread about my ability to give advice in plain English, easy for people to understand and implement. And that got me invited onto the radio as a guest for a short 15-minute interview. That interview ended up lasting an entire hour. And at the end, the host, John Lyon, asked me to come back. Here's a brief clip of my second interview that I ever did on radio. As Joe Q. Public comes to see you, mm-hmm. he's got a few dollars, not a big, not a big amount of money, but something substantial that, he, that, you, that you see that, yeah, he can do something. What do you ask him? What do you want to know about this fellow when he walks in? If I come in here, what, what kind of a thing goes on? We want to do a financial diagnosis, so to speak, John, very similar to the way a physician would take care of your, uh, your medical health. We want to take uh, information based on your financial health. Mm-hmm. We want to know, for example, what your income is like, what your debt structure is, how much money do you spend every month, do you have credit card debts or outstanding loan balances and so on. We want to know how much money you have in the bank or in various investments right now. Where is your money? Um, what's it doing? Where is it performing? How much interest are you earning on it? And so on. And then finally, we want to take a look at your objectives. What is it that's worrying you? Are you concerned about taxes? Are you concerned about your own retirement, about getting the kids into college, buying a new car, a vacation home, or what have you? Are you worried about an aged parent? Um, lots of different possibilities that can be on people's minds. And once we have that all worked out, and that normally takes at least a good couple of hours, if not two or three sessions as people are able to put the data together for us, mm-hmm. we'll then be able to map out a game plan for how to get you from where you are today to where you need to be uh, based on your objectives. So it's largely a diagnostic type of approach. Isn't that amazing? That was 1989. And what I said then is identical to how my colleagues and I here at Edelman Financial Engines serve our clients today. Has your advisor been consistent like that? Or are you constantly bombarded with the newest approach, the latest hot tip or unproven fad, often given because the last hot tip or unproven fad didn't work out? The opportunity for me to be here with you every weekend and empower you to analyze and avoid the sales pitches and the media hype, that's what I love doing best about the show. Stay with us as we continue our celebration of our 29th anniversary special show here on The Rick Edelman Show. Stay with us. Money doesn't come with instructions. More of your questions coming up on The Rick Edelman Show. Back to the Rick Edelman Show. We've got a very special program today, the celebration of our 29th anniversary of the Rick Edelman Show. I'm often asked, what was the most memorable broadcast? Without a doubt, February 1st, 2003. 
I was on the air when the Columbia Space Shuttle was destroyed during its re-entry. It was a Saturday, and I was broadcasting live. And because it was a weekend, the newsroom was empty. And so the station manager called me and said, Rick, you've got to stay on the air as we go to cover this disaster. And so I ended up on the air for hours, acting as a newscaster, feeding to the network in New York and to reporters on the ground. It was such a traumatic experience for the entire nation, of course. I was scared to death because I was responsible for getting these people on the air and feeding the signals correctly. I'm just a personal finance guy. But on that day, I became a real broadcaster. You know, when you're called, you step up and you do what's necessary, even if you're uncomfortable. And so that was one of the most memorable events for me here on the air. Another was when I was invited to broadcast my show live from Ground Zero on the 10th anniversary of 9-11. That, without question, was the most moving show I ever did. And perhaps the most impactful show came about when I got a call from a listener. We take lots of calls here on the show, as you know, and on one show, the caller was John from Manassas. I'll never forget his phone call. He called in 1996, and he said that he wanted to save money for his newborn son. I thought he meant college, but he corrected me, and he said he's worried about his baby's retirement. I realized John's a genius. I'd never considered saving for retirement for a baby, but if you think about it, the power of compounding is all about time. The more time you have, the more wealth you can create. Consider this. Save $100 a month for 20 years and earn 7% a year. You invest $24,000, you end up with $52,000. But if you save for 60 years, not just 20, look what happens. You triple your investment to 72 grand, but you end up with not 52 grand, $1.1 million. Not three times as much, 20 times as much. So John was right. Let's start saving for retirement for babies. That phone call set me on a path to invent a way to do this. I ended up receiving two patents for my innovative idea, and that led to my proposal called RISE, Retirement Income Security for Everyone, which eliminates poverty and retirement for all future generations. You can learn about it at wecanrise.com. And in turn, that led to the creation of the Funding Our Future Coalition. Today, with more than 50 partners, corporations, nonprofit organizations, think tanks, academia, trade groups, our goal is to make it easier for people of all ages, even babies, to save for retirement, to be able to enjoy lifetime income in retirement, and to save Social Security. And you can learn more about the coalition at FundingOurFuture.us. One of the most memorable programs we did was during the credit crisis of 2008. Consumers around the country were petrified from the collapse of Lehman Brothers and the ensuing market meltdown. So C-SPAN came into my radio studio with their TV cameras in tow, and they broadcast my radio show as a live simulcast on C-SPAN. It was thrilling to share my advice with millions of Americans who had never heard the show before. And of course, we've done a massive amount of programming focused on the pandemic most recently. Early on, when we were first hearing about people going on ventilators, I was pretty sure that few people understood what that really meant or what the estate planning implications were. So I invited Dr. Albert Holt, 
the medical director of critical care services at Inova Hospital in Fairfax, Virginia, to join me on the program. Here's a clip of that interview that we aired last March. We hear the phrase, go on a ventilator. What does it mean for someone to go on a ventilator? So when we talk about mechanical ventilation, we're really talking about a form of life support for patients. And so this is life support for their lungs, essentially, to kind of make it as simple as possible. It's when the lungs are no longer able to get enough oxygen or provide enough ventilation to remove the carbon dioxide. In these cases that we see most currently, it's really around challenges with oxygenation because the lungs don't become as functional as they would normally be. So they get boggy, they get infected, they get swollen. So if you think about a sponge, um, and all of those pockets to a sponge being air pockets, and then all of a sudden you get an infection, and then that infection basically makes them very heavy sponges and no longer able to oxygenate the body as well. You need to provide a higher level of oxygen um, to those lungs than would normally be the case, and you use techniques in mechanical ventilation that enable you to kind of open up those pockets to then help them to get that oxygen better. If you get to the point where you need mechanical ventilation because you're not able to oxygenate as well as you uh, need to to provide oxygen to the brain and to the rest of the organs of the body, then you're in a situation where um, you're more likely to not survive. Most people say, well, I don't want to be kept alive with machines, right? I mean, that's usually what, what people will routinely say. They want to have everything done, but they don't want to be kept alive with machines. And so it becomes a, uh, a, an interesting conversation because a lot of it is what would that, given the patient's condition, what they're able to do before they ended up needing life support, what would that person's decision be if they were making the decision themselves? And this is kind of where the um, advanced directives sometimes get in very tricky um, because essentially when you're on a ventilator, you're generally not able to make your own decisions. You're sedated, you're on medications. It's not necessarily in a situation where the, the, we would go to the patient on the ventilator to say, do you want to have this? Do you want to not have this? And so frequently families rely on that advanced directive. And so that advanced directive is, is usually pretty limited in terms of what people are able to do and say, okay, well, if I'm going to be kept on life support, I don't really want to do that. Some people set up timeframes. Other people say that they don't want to have anything done. They don't want to be subject to a ventilator. They don't want to be intubated. They don't want to have CPR done. And those are all reasonable based upon whatever conditions they uh, come into this situation with and whatever their quality of life is going to be. A lot of that has to come from the conversations that's had with whoever is the substituted judgment person who is, whose role it is to make the decisions for that family member or friend based upon what that person who's now intubated on a mechanical ventilator would choose to do themselves. And that's where sometimes we find it gets really tricky because people sometimes will apply their own moral judgment on what they want to do for them versus what that person who may be incapacitated to make those decisions to do. But how often do you encounter patients who have not provided those documents? They have not signed them in advance. So that happens too often than I would like. And really, part of what's needed is not just to have the document signed, but to really have conversations with the people that are going to be making those decisions in terms of things that they would not would not choose to do. If you could give one piece of advice to our listeners regarding this conversation, what would that be? Really be to consider and have conversations with uh, family members around what your wishes are in terms of care and what you would and would not want to have happen to you um, and what kind of quality of life uh, is consistent with your values. The, the conversation to have with families around this and choosing the person that you want to be the decider 
um, is going to be vitally important for people. And those are the conversations that we as the clinicians have the, the best outcomes when it comes to making sure that we're comfortable doing exactly what a patient would have chosen in the circumstance that they were sitting there talking to us when we present them with whatever the decisions are in terms of care. That was Dr. Albert Holt, the Medical Director of Critical Care Services at Inova Hospital. You know, over the years, I've done lots of unusual broadcasts. I once did a four-hour radio show from a phone booth. (laughs) Yeah, long before the days of cell phones, and back when my show was four hours long, I was at a financial planning conference, and I had to do the show. The only way was standing in a phone booth for four hours. I also did a broadcast from the Chicago Auto Show one year. That was a ton of fun. And I also broadcast the show once from Tom Wood's bedroom. Tom is one of the financial advisors here at Edelman Financial Engines. Gene and I were vacationing with Tom and his wife, Joy, and I needed a quiet place in his house to do the show. And his bedroom was it. So there I was, broadcasting the show from Tom's bedroom. And no, I will not tell you where I was in the room or how I was dressed or where Gene and Joy and Tom were. We'll just move on. One of the most interesting phone calls I got was from a guy named Ben. He's in the U.S. Army, and he was calling me for financial advice. Nothing unusual about that. I get lots of calls from members of the military. God bless them all. But Ben, he was calling from Iraq. He was in the middle of a war zone, and he was worried what to do with his hazard pay. That was one of the most astonishing phone calls I ever had. I'll have more fun moments for you from the show, including a rant at me from a listener. Stay with us here on The Rick Edelman Show. 888-PLAN-RICK, rickedelman.com. More with the author of the 2008 Personal Finance Book of the Year, The Lies About Money, coming up on The Rick Edelman Show. Welcome back to the Rick Edelman Show. We're celebrating the 29th anniversary of this program and remembering some of the fun moments we had. I remember a fascinating conversation on the air with Cindy Crawford. She was doing something on Capitol Hill. I don't remember what, but it was a big to-do about it, and so they arranged an interview with me and her so she could talk about whatever it is she was talking about. She is such a consummate professional. She was like, hey, Rick, how are you doing? It sounded like we'd gone to high school together. And sure enough, after the broadcast, friends of mine were like, wow, you really know Cindy Crawford? I was like, well, well, yeah, of course I do. Uh, No, not really. Once I was doing the show from the broadcast studios in New York City, I'm in the middle of a broadcast. The on-air light is on. I'm talking on the air. And who walks into the studio? Larry Kudlow. And he goes, hey, Rick, mind if I smoke? I'm like, Larry. I'm doing a show. <laughs> I've got a lot of fun moments with listeners on the air and even on my voicemail. Not everyone, though, is a fan of the show. Here's one woman who called me one day. I'm a psychologist, and to listen to this maniac on the radio, Rick Edelson, is bizarre. He goes on and on for 20 minutes about a postman who is upset him because the postman asked for a tip. So he goes rants and raves like a maniac. He's still ranting. You can hear him. This man needs psychiatric help. 
he is absolutely the most narcissistic, ranting individual we have ever listened to. There are four of us here, two of us are lawyers, and we wouldn't <laughs> go with him if our life depended on it. I am absolutely outraged at his unprofessionalism and his crazy ranting. Get him some help and shame on him. My God, poor man. I'm ranting? And that wasn't enough. She called back. We think that Rick Edelman is off the wall. Sociopathic, raving maniac, needs some help with a psychiatrist or psychologist to manage his anger. He yells and screams. He's really unbelievably immature. He really needs help. This crazy maniac person (laughs) on the radio. So, okay, not everybody's a fan of the show. Do you know who else is not a fan of the show? Susie Orman. Get Rick Edelman, who was on Business Center the other night, say whatever he said and get him here, too, and I'll smack his little face. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. So that was Susie Orman ranting about me on CNBC. I don't remember what I said on the air, but obviously she didn't like it. And I'll smack his little face. Oh, boy. Just listen to the stuff that comes out of her mouth. Listen to what she said in a TV interview. I am a personal finance expert. In fact, I'm the personal finance expert for the entire world. And try this one. Is there anything you don't know? When it comes to money, no. There is nothing that I do not know. That I'm sure about. And I'll smack his little face. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Yeah, Susie Orman, big deal author, talk show host. But hey, I, not Susie Orman, am the most powerful person in America, and I'm going to prove it to you. I've proved it many times on this radio show, and I'm going to prove it again. And I hasten to add, this is going to annoy a lot of people because it always does. You see, I have the ability, unique in this country, for making every dog in America bark. Don't believe me? Go get your dog. Ready? Here goes. That's it. Every dog in this country is now simultaneously barking. That's exactly right. Every dog with a near shot of this program is barking. And frankly, it's perfect evidence that dogs are really incredibly stupid because your doorbell doesn't even sound like that. And yet there they go. They're often running to the front door because they're hearing this sound. The amazing thing is that every time I play this bit, I get nasty phone calls. I had one lady call me one day. She was so mad at me because her dog wouldn't shut up for a half hour because I kept ringing the doorbell. Ain't radio great? Hey, go host your own radio show. You get to do all kinds of fun stuff. You know, it really wasn't my intent to write 10 books. In fact, I never planned to write any books, but listeners to the show started asking me what book could they read to learn more. And I didn't like any of the books on the market. I couldn't endorse any of them or recommend them in good conscience. So I said, okay, I don't have a choice. I've got to go write one of my own. And so I wrote The Truth About Money. It was based on a course I was teaching at Georgetown University. I was on the faculty there for nine years. It took me three and a half years to write my book, The Truth About Money. Georgetown University published it, and it ended up winning the Book of the Year Award from the Institute for Financial Literacy, plus a Gold Medal Axiom Award and an Apex Award. And it was named Book of the Year by Small Press Magazine as well. The Truth About Money debuted at number one on the Washington Post bestseller list, stayed number one for 22 weeks, and stayed on the bestseller list overall for 70 weeks in total. 
I wrote nine more books, including a children's book with my wife, Jean, called The Squirrel Manifesto. My book, Ordinary People, Extraordinary Wealth, hit number one on the New York Times bestseller list, and The Lies About Money was also named Book of the Year by the Institute for Financial Literacy. It also won an Axiom Award. In addition to teaching at Georgetown University for nine years, I've also lectured at Roger Williams University, George Washington University, Stanford, and Pepperdine. I'm now Distinguished Lecturer at Rowan University. Rowan gave me an honorary doctorate in 1999, and I graduated from the executive program at Singularity University in 2012, and I also hold six professional designations. I mention all of this because it's important that you know who the people are that you're listening to. You need to know their background and their experience. Is the person who's telling you what to do someone you should be listening to? And I'll smack his little face. Oh, boy. We've done a lot of really great bits over the years. Here's one of my favorites. Lady Gaga explaining her reaction to having to pay taxes. It might not seem like a big deal because, you know, I'm like a pop singer or whatever. It's like it still like hurts to write a check when you didn't like <laughs> We were laughing. Everybody was laughing because when I signed my tax returns this year, I had to get completely wasted. <laughs> I was just like, they were just, they were just holding me up. Like, I just was, I just couldn't even, it's unbelievable. I want one bourbon, one scotch, one beer. Everybody has to pay taxes. Even businessmen that rob and steal and cheat from people every day, even they have to pay taxes. Speaking of which, do you think uh, that you could uh, give me my 20000 in cash? Uh, my concern is that this might bump me up into a higher tax grant. Uh, Let the bears pay the bear tax. I pay the homer tax. When I signed my tax returns this year, I had to get completely wasted. I was boneless with hay. I was boneless with hay. I'm on the right track, baby. I was boneless with hay. All right, so that was one of the funnier bits, but some of the interviews were anything but funny. One of the most powerful interviews we ever provided here on the program was with Mickey Rooney. He was testifying before Congress on elder financial abuse. Mickey Rooney, of course, one of the most admired and beloved actors of all time. He was going back from when he was a child actor all the way through more recently and what happened to him as he entered his elder years. Here is what he told Congress. I was unable to avoid becoming a victim of elder abuse. Elder abuse comes in many, many different forms. Physical abuse, emotional abuse and financial abuse. You feel scared, disappointed, and you can't believe that it's happening to you. You feel, you feel overwhelmed. When I asked for information, I was told that I, I couldn't have any information of my own. I do what the hell were you talking about? I was told it was none of my business. When you're told that, you're left to leave powerless. And if it can happen to me, it can happen to anyone. Even when I tried to speak up, I was told to shut up and be quiet. You don't know what you're talking about. It seemed that no one, no one wanted to believe me. I know who I'm talking about. And I'm, I'm not speaking just for myself. What I hope to be, what I was, was taken from me. I'm asking you to stop this of elderly abuse. I mean to stop it. 
So I brought that to the attention of my audience because we've got clients who have parents who are older. Many of us are living thousands of miles from our parents, and we need to make sure that they're well taken care of. So that was a really powerful segment. I also interviewed Richard Cordray, the first director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. It's not just scammers hurting people. I've also expressed indignation many times over the media and their irresponsible behavior of scaring people needlessly. Remember Hurricane Irene in the summer of 2011? According to the media, this was going to be the most devastating hurricane since Hurricane Andrew. And what ended up happening with Hurricane Irene? Nothing. But here's what the media said. Hurricane Irene now bearing down on the Carolinas. Bracing for Irene, the East Coast on high alert this morning. Tonight, Hurricane Irene is about to launch an assault on the East Coast of the United States. Taking dead aim at some of America's biggest cities. The monster Category 2 storm is expected to roar ashore for what could turn out to be the worst storm to hit the area in decades. And so it turned out to be nothing. The media just built up this hype. They scared people relentlessly. I talked about it on the show because the media does that with the stock market, too. Here's what they said during the 2008 credit crisis. No, we have Armageddon. We, get, we have Armageddon. In the fixed income markets, we have Armageddon. Could U.S. Treasury bonds soon rate as junk bonds? This story can only end one of three ways. Another Great Depression, like 1929. Economic stagflation, like 1979. Or a Soviet-style collapse, like 1989. Susie, how bad is this? Is this comparable to the Great Depression? Yes, sir. This is seri- Really? This is seriously bad. And you all remember what the headlines were at the start of the pandemic a year ago. But look where we are today. The stock market's at an all-time high. I'm not saying past performance guarantees future results or that you won't ever experience volatility, but dealing with panics and crisis? Common for this show. When we return on The Rick Edelman Show with our special 29th anniversary celebration, I'll bring you more on the media and tips for how to avoid making mistakes based on what you hear from the media. Stay with us for more. Rick Edelman here, 888-PLAN-RICK is our phone number, online at rickedelman.com. with the publisher of the newsletter Inside Personal Finance coming up on The Rick Edelman Show. Welcome back to the 29th anniversary broadcast of The Rick Edelman Show. We're looking back at some of the most impactful conversations we've had on the program over the past three decades, and here's one of the most important ones. When you need financial advice, who do you ask? You'd be amazed where people get their advice. A few years back, I told you about a study from the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans. They found that three out of four people, when they need advice about a financial decision, they ask a family member, a friend, or a coworker. Three out of four. Let me get this straight. Your brother-in-law is as dumb as you. Your co-worker's in a cubicle right next to you. Or was, anyway, before COVID hit. Your neighbor lives in a house or an apartment in the same price range as yours. And these are the people you're going to for financial advice? Uh, you know, here's an idea. Ask a financial planner. Oh, yeah, okay, wait. I, I get it. You don't think you can trust a financial planner. 
You know that all those folks on Wall Street, they're just salespeople hawking investments and insurance products to earn big, fat commissions. Why on earth would you want to ask them for advice? So you've got no choice but to turn to your brother-in-law, your neighbor, and your co-workers sitting in the next cubicle. Well, here's what so many people don't understand. Yeah, a lot of people in Wall Street, a lot of people in the financial services industry are product-peddling sales reps. But not everybody. All you need to do is talk to a financial advisor who is a fiduciary. That's someone who, by law, legally serves your best interests. A registered investment advisor, like us here at Edelman Financial Engines. I mentioned earlier in the show Phyllis Borzy. She was Assistant Secretary at the Department of Labor. She's been on the show many times. And on one of her visits, she talked about the importance of working with an advisor who's a fiduciary. Here's what she said. You know, we had basically two groups of people giving financial advice. The brokers and the insurance agents and what are called registered investment advisors, like the planners you have at Edelman. They have a legal obligation to act as fiduciaries, to put your interests first and not submerge your interest to the financial interest of the person giving you advice. One way is to look at the marketplace and say, you know what, there are two distinct classes of people who claim that they are going to give you investment advice. One class of those people, the brokers and the insurance agents, is not required by law to put your interest at the tip top and held to a fiduciary standard where the recommendation has to be solely in your interest, more than your best interest, but solely in your interest. If you're a person who wants to work in the advice industry. One in which you're really just a salesman, and historically that's brokers and the insurance uh, agents. So you can either be a salesman or you can be somebody who gives trusted, reliable advice. The number one thing I say to investors is do not hire anybody who is not willing to put in writing a commitment to act as a fiduciary and to be legally obligated to act as a fiduciary. That's great advice from Phyllis Borzy, former assistant secretary at the Department of Labor and now member of the board of Edelman Financial Engines. And as we near the end of this special 29th anniversary broadcast, let me give you my 29 top pieces of advice that I've shared with you over the past 29 years. Keep in mind, as I go through this list, you should always consult with a financial professional to ensure that this advice is in your best interest. Number one, get a big, long mortgage, 30 years, not 15. Don't make extra payments. Don't make biweekly payments. Number two, diversify your investments. Number three, buy ETFs and mutual funds, not individual stocks. Number four, maintain a long-term focus with your investment strategy. Number five, rebalance your portfolio periodically. Number six, keep your investment costs low. Number seven, don't buy investments based on their past performance. Number eight, save for college with a 529 savings plan. Number nine, never make an investment decision based on taxes. Number 10, take advantage of dollar cost averaging. Number 11, 
Don't buy a house unless you plan to live in it for at least seven years. Number 12, pay yourself first. Number 13, don't convert your IRA to the Roth. Number 14, don't name minors as beneficiaries. Number 15, never buy investments simply because they're rated five stars. Number 16, hire an independent, fee-based financial advisor who serves as a fiduciary. Number 17, make sure you're saving sufficiently for retirement before you start saving for your kid's college. Number 18, never buy life insurance as an investment. Number 19, don't title assets between generations. Number 20, don't invest solely in bonds when trying to generate income from your investments. Number 21, take the lump sum option from your pension. Number 22, don't bother budgeting. It's a waste of time. Save the amount you need to invest to achieve your goals and then spend the rest of your money however you want. Number 23, ignore the media. Number 24, don't mix politics with your investments. Number 25, maintain at least one year of spending in cash reserves. Number 26, don't lend money to family or friends unless you're willing to lose the money or the relationship. Number 27, pay attention to exponential technologies. Ask if your career is threatened by them and ask if your portfolio is reflective of them. Number 28, be sure you're thinking about whether blockchain and digital assets should be a part of your financial plan. And number 29, be sure to listen every week to The Rick Edelman Show, because as I've been saying since 1992, money doesn't come with instructions. Thank you so much for your support. I'm honored and humbled to be with you here every week. Most importantly, I want to say thank you to you for listening to and supporting this program. You are the most important in this whole conversation. You're the reason we're all here, and it's with tremendous gratitude and respect that we're here for you, and that we're going to continue to be here for you to offer our advice and service for years to come, to expand our ability to serve you and your financial needs for those of you and your family. And so I'll end today with a tagline that I used to use when the show debuted back in 1992. If you love the show, tell a friend. And if you hate the show, tell an enemy. I'm Rick Edelman. See you next week. The truth about money. Every weekend on The Rick Edelman Show.